as well uh, in here, 10.30, normal time, celebrating the good news of the resurrection uh, and celebrating some baptisms following that also. So um, a great weekend coming up real soon. Um, and great week to invite people to. If you've got a Bible, you can turn now to Matthew chapter 20. And on the screen behind me, that'll be there as well. And this is Jesus speaking. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went again. He went out again about noon and at about three in the afternoon did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who hired last only worked one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm the lead pastor, and thank you for being here and making it here with all the sickness and things going around. It's actually a bit of, you really deserve a clap for yourselves almost just for getting here. Um, but it's great to be able to gather together. And, um, and also just um, mentioning on, on Easter coming up, um, just to agree with what Jacob was saying, I think that is going to be an amazing weekend to celebrate the cross and the resurrection. And I'm going to put it out there. I think this is going to be our best Easter ever. And not just because this is our first ever Easter Friday service and not because it's going to be like some amazing performance, but because as a church, we're going to be able to gather together to just celebrate what Christians should be about, the cross and the resurrection and the central message of grace that we have in Christ Jesus. So get excited about that. Be praying about people who need to know this message and who after a couple of years of things being pretty tough could actually use the hope and the grace of the gospel um, knowing that Jesus is so good. So just be praying about that as, as we approach Easter. Um, but this morning we are looking at the gospel of grace and at a strange little story that Jesus tells to illustrate what God is actually like. Because stories tell us things, don't they? There's a, a fairy tale from many, many moons ago from the Brothers Grimm, who if you've read any of their fairy tales in their original form, are usually shockingly violent and inappropriate for kids. Um, but there you go, we tell these stories to kids, and usually we just, we just trim the edges a little bit. But there's one story called The True Sweetheart, or The True Bride. And it's the story of a young girl who's made to work very hard by her stepmother. Right? I, I don't know what stepmothers were like back in the day. They really got a bad rap. Almost every story is a, a good kid and a bad stepmom. Anyway, but this stepmom despises the daughter and so gives her impossible tasks. 
So on one day she says to her, you have till the end of the day to go and pluck 12 pounds of feathers. And the daughter goes out and is obviously despairing because she knows if she doesn't do it, there'll be a beating waiting for her. And an old woman meets her as she's crying over her troubles and says, don't worry, lay down, have a rest, and I'll sort it out. And she comes back to her with 12 pounds of feathers, takes them back to her mother, who is impressed but also annoyed, and sets her another task for the next day. So she says to her, that pond over there, you have to go to it with a teaspoon and empty out the entire pond with a teaspoon. And so the next day she sets out to do it, and she gets there, of course she's despairing, but she sees the old woman again, who this time tells her to lie down in a thicket, have a rest, and the old woman goes to the pond, touches it with the spoon, and the whole pond evaporates. And then she shows her mother, her stepmother at the end of the day. Now at this point, if you're the stepmom, you should at least be a little bit concerned about messing with this girl who seems to be able to do these incredible things, but she doesn't. Instead, she's mad about it, so she sets her an even more impossible task for the next day. She says to her, she takes her into a valley that's you know, filled, like a quarry that's filled with rocks. She says, you have to make me a castle out of all of these rocks here. And afterwards, I'm going to inspect it. And if there's even one issue with it, you'll get the, you know, whatever, beating of your life. So the same thing happens. The girl stands there. The old woman comes along. She tells her to rest and have a lie down in the shade. And then the old woman magically produces a castle. And the stepmother comes back and she is furious because again she's been thwarted. So she goes through the castle looking for some kind of problem that she can dwell on. And then she goes to go in the cellar and as she does, the cellar door crashes on her and kills her. There, yeah, there had to be that kind of bit, didn't there? There had to be something brutal in a Brothers Grimm fairy story. But then the young girl ends up living in the castle, marries a prince, you, can, you fill in the rest for yourself, Right? Now the question is, why do stories like this, why have they lasted so many years? Well, it has to be that they get at some kind of human desire that is somewhat universal or still kind of deeply resonates with people even to today. And I think many of the, the fairy tales that have lasted this long have lasted because they're stories about where good people have good things happen to them and bad people have bad things happen to them. They're stories of just perfect justice. They're quite satisfying. They're the opposite of like an art house film that has like a weird ambivalent ending or where the good guy or good girl actually dies and you walk away feeling like, I don't know if I just wasted my life watching that thing. But they're satisfying because it's, it's a perfect wrapped up ending. And we love it because it's not the world that we live in. We live in a world where bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And even when justice gets done, it's never done quite right. And so we love this, this kind of story. Because the world we live in isn't like that. And the world we live in can leave us feeling kind of hard done by. I don't know if that's how you feel at the moment. Sometimes we can feel like we've got a bad deal in life. We feel a little bit ripped off. We feel like other people have got it better than us. Like we've got less than we deserve. What would it feel like for you to live knowing that you'd got more than you deserve. To wake up feeling like, I'm so fortunate. To wake up feeling like, I've got way more than I deserve. It's almost a scandal, almost a crime that things have been so good for me. What kind of person would you be like? And what would it be like to be around you? What would it be like to be around a person like that? Well, that's what it's like to understand grace. That if we understand the gospel... It's the sense that God has been overwhelmingly good to me. 
that he has given me way more than what I deserve, that actually he has been gracious to me. In fact, if you wanted to define grace, it's getting much, much more than you deserve. It's not getting something bad that you do deserve, but more than that, it's getting something so good that you don't. And grace is the only thing that can lead us to a life of gratitude and joy. And so I'm going to pray that as we open God's word this morning, and as we look at this parable, this funny little parable that Jesus teaches, that we would get the depths of grace that he wants us to get from this. Let's pray. Father, so often our hearts are hard, and we hear your word, but it strikes our dull hearts and moves away. And so we just pray that by your spirit, you would empower us to hear Jesus' words, his teaching on grace, and to understand it clearly. That this story, even if we've heard it before, might strike us anew. And Father, we pray that you would do this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Jesus often explains what it's like to follow him by telling stories or parables. And they usually start out with a phrase like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And what he's saying is, this is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to be like. This is an experience you're going to have if you actually follow me. And normally there are things like the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field or the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great worth or the kingdom of heaven is like a field and a farmer sowed seed in it. These are how all these stories start. And this one starts exactly the same. But I think if I'm reading it rightly, this is a story that most people, you may have heard it before, but it's not, it's not one of his kind of more famous parables. And so as we dive into it, I'd love for you to be thinking what it is that Jesus is teaching us through this parable. But in Matthew 21 to 2, it starts in this way. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So we have a master of a house, a boss, if you like, in modern terms. He owns a vineyard and he's looking for some workers. In the ancient Near East, one denarius was a standard day's pay. It was a very simple system. You work a day, you get one denarius. That's how it works. And he goes out and, and hires these laborers who agree to this mount, and it's a good day's pay for a good day's work. It's a very simple, very normal kind of ancient Near Eastern setting and arrangement, something that every one of the listeners would have been familiar with. But then the story gets a little bit strange. In Matthew 20, sentence 3, it says, And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. And going out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You can go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came out, each of them received a denarius. So he hires the first set of laborers. says, I'll hire you for a day, you get a denarius. But then he goes back to the marketplace to find where hired help would be. This is kind of the ancient equivalent of air tasker. You go to the marketplace, you find people who are looking to you know, put their hand to work, you find them and hire them. But he goes first at the first hour, which is probably about 6 a.m., so sunrise. But then he goes back at the third hour, so 9 a.m., and he hires another set of workers. And then he goes back 
at 12 and 3 p.m. and continues to hire workers to do a day's, a day's labor. But then he comes back at the 11th hour. And by the way, if you've heard the phrase at the 11th hour being referring to the very last minute, it comes from this story, from this parable. So he goes back at the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m. And remember, a day is sun up to sundown, so 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And he comes out at the last hour at 5 p.m. And he sees these guys who no one has hired. No one wants them. And he has compassion on them and hires them. Now just think about these poor fellas. They've been standing in the marketplace in the heat all day. Seeing as we're in a school gym, I feel like this is an appropriate illustration to just give us a sense of what it's like for these guys. When you teach PE, which I did, there is a golden rule when it comes to, to creating teams. There is one thing that you never, ever, ever, ever do as a teacher because you're in charge and you know what to do. You never let teams, you never let the, the students pick the teams because when you do that, you realize that kids have no chill and they don't care if there's someone in the class who feels left out. They will only pick the best players. So effectively what you're doing is you're creating a parade of the least desirable team members who will, and they will have to stand there. They'll just watch one person after another go every time until they're finally, and you, maybe, you're <laughs> maybe you're having PTSD right now because you can remember like being in a school gym, having that happen, you're about to whatever. But you know that you don't do it because that's what happens every time. And if you keep doing that as a teacher, it's going to be the same kids who are last to be picked every time and they just stand there not knowing where to look. You never do it. But an ancient Near Eastern marketplace wasn't like that. If people didn't want to hire you, they didn't hire you. And so there are these guys at the end of the day that no one wants. No one wants to hire them. And they're left there standing about. And the master comes back out and says, you guys, have you been here all day? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, look, come and work in my vineyard. So with one hour to go in the day, he hires them to come back and to do the work. But think about this. They get paid the same amount as everyone else. So those who have been there from 6 a.m. and those who have been there from 5 p.m. all get the same amount at the end of the day. And of course, this sparks outrage. Look what happens. Matthew 20, 10 to 16 says, Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. The first workers who come are outraged because the way they were paid, if you remember the story, is the foreman takes those who are last and pays them first. So when the guys who are last, who've only done an hour's work, who've basically only just got there and now they're getting paid, get a denarius, the guys who started at 6 a.m. are like, oh my gosh, they're doing the math in their head. They're like, if you get a denarius for every hour, we're going to get 12 days pay. But then the guys who came at like 3 p.m. get a denarius, and they're like, oh, that's weird. But surely he's not going to do that to everyone, right? Then those who are at 12 p.m. get a denarius, then 9, and then 6, they all get one, one, hour, uh, one day's pay. And you can kind of feel the injustice of that, right? The sense of feeling a little bit ripped off. Like, come on. We've been here all day in the scorching heat, working hard. These guys, these Johnny-come-latelys come at 5 p.m., and you give them the same pay? But then look how the master responds to them. He replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. 
Did you not agree with me to, for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. That's fair cop, really. He says to them, hey, at the beginning of the day, did I say to you, would you work a day's work for a denarius? And you said yes. And at that point, they realize they're kind of all out of arguments. And it's funny because he's completely right. But he says to them, do you begrudge my generosity? He says, look, I haven't treated you unfairly. I realize I've been more generous to others, but I haven't in any way broken my agreement with you. And then Jesus finishes this story by saying, so the last will be first and the first last. Now, what does this parable mean? Well, some have approached it this way. Maybe Jesus is giving us an insight into what it feels like for Israel. They were initially God's chosen people, but now the gospel and the, the possibility of a relationship with God is going to go out to anyone from any nation, tribe, nation, and tongue. And so they might feel a little bit like those first workers. Hey, we were the real people of God. We're the ones who've kind of been with you the whole time. We're not these fair-weather fans who just jumped in at the last minute. And it's, it's kind of uh, addressing the potential... I don't know what lack of generosity or grace from Israel that they might feel like other nations should be included in the people of God. But I don't think that's the case. It seems pretty doubtful from this passage. And for a couple of reasons. One, because Jesus actually kind of makes this point in a parable just one chapter later in Matthew 21. But in this story, he describes the owner of a vineyard sending his workers to the vineyard and when he sends his, uh, sends his messengers to the vineyard, the people of the vineyard beat them up and even eventually kill them. And the message of that parable is not that Israel has been faithful like the workers from the beginning of the day, but they've been unfaithful over and over again. And so now the message of the gospel will go out to everyone else. So it seems like that's probably not what he's getting at here with this story. Israel again and again have not been described as faithful workers who are owed their due, but actually an unfaithful Israel. It doesn't seem to fit with the story here. But another possible interpretation is the idea that maybe this kind of represents Christians who get saved really late in life. So kind of like the thief on the cross who's lived a terrible life and then at the last second he repents and he gets grace and maybe there's a temptation among other Christians to sort of begrudgingly accept that that could happen or to feel a little bit ripped off. But again, I think this really wouldn't match up with with how Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven and what it means to follow him year after year. Because if that were the case, he would be describing following him as hard, backbreaking work under the scorching sun. And the kind of the idea that, like, that those who had followed Jesus all of their life had done the hard yards and really owed to get were, were sort of uh, deserved to be paid at the end. But in the end, there are some others who get to live the life they really want and then can just sort of repent at the end. That doesn't seem to accord with how Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't sound at that point like that following Jesus is like the, the treasure of great worth or the pearl of great worth. Now, I think this parable is getting at something else. And I think calling it the parable of the workers probably sets us up to misread it from the start. It's a bit of misdirection. The focal point of this story is not the workers, but the owner. Jesus often tells parables by creating a really normal scene 
And then he inserts one weird character. And this is a common sort of narrative device. There's an author called Franz Kafka, who's like an Austro-Hungarian author. And he wrote a story called Metamorphosis. I don't know if you read it or had to read it at school or something like that. But he was, he was a genius at creating these really ordinary scenes and then just putting something really weird right in the middle. So in Metamorphosis, you have this scene of like a, a boring bureaucratic salesman who lives in an apartment with his family and is just in every way a, a human without a personality. And then one day he wakes up and he's a bug. And that's it. And it's this weird interaction where, you know, there are interactions with his boss who's mad at him for being late at work and almost no one's talking about the fact that this man inexplicably is now a bug in a bed. And so it's, it's a great way of drawing attention to the main character. It's a narrative device. You know, in the same way, this story is meant to draw our attention to the owner. Do you know why? Because anyone listening to this story in the ancient world would have been thinking, a boss would never do that. Forget about the workers. What boss would hire someone in the last hour of the day and pay them a full day's wage? Even in today's context, that's not that hard to relate to, is it? Now, when Jesus here tells the story, his point is about the boss. I mean, he says this is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. What he's saying is when you come to know God, the main operating principle of the kingdom will not be do good, get good, do your work, get paid, but it will be grace and undeserved favor. That that will be the nature of the kingdom because that's the nature of God. The God is like the boss in the story who doesn't give to us what we deserve, but is a generous giver. Biblical scholar Simon Kistemarker says this about it. It says, The principle in the world is that he who works the longest receives the most pay. That is just. But in the kingdom of God, the principles of merit and ability may be set aside so that grace can prevail. The primary operating principle of the kingdom of knowing God will not be works, but grace. God is a God of grace. And because of this, under grace, Many who, will be, who consider themselves to be first will find themselves last, and many who should be last will be first. And if you want a lived illustration of this, just come with me to Corinthians 15 and to the story of Paul the Apostle. Listen to what he says about his conversion. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-10, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. But I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul persecuted the church. He oversaw Christians being beaten, maimed, arrested, even killed. He was there when the first follower of Jesus was murdered. And he oversaw it and he approved of it. As they killed an innocent man called Stephen by bricking him to death. And when Paul saw that, he saw it as good. 
But then as he is heading off to kill and persecute and imprison more Christians, he's confronted by the risen Lord Jesus himself and the reality of the gospel, and it turns his entire world upside down. And he comes now to know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He has his sin forgiven, and he becomes an apostle. But hear how he describes himself as the least of the apostles, as the least worthy to be an apostle, as the last possible person that you would think should be appointed as a leader in God's church. And not just any leader, but someone who would write a large percentage of the New Testament scriptures. And just imagine what the experience for him would have been like of being saved and brought into the people of God. Do you know, after he gets saved, he has to go to Jerusalem to meet the other apostles because people have heard that this guy who used to kill Christians has become a Christian. But of course, most people are worried that he's faking it and that it's a trick and that in the end, he's probably just doing this so that he can get inside the movement to kill and maim more people. And so he comes down to Jerusalem and there's one guy who believes him, Barnabas, who says, this guy's for real, he's legit, he's really been saved and he's vouching for him. But imagine being Paul walking into a room full of people and eyeballing them, knowing that you had either killed or arrested or had beaten their relatives or maybe even people in that room. And the reason he has courage to stand in that room is what he says here. He says, because by the grace of God I am what I am. Not because I'm worthy, not because I'm good, not because I've done enough good things, but because God has been gracious to me. Jesus says, Many who are last will be first. This is the way it will be in the kingdom of God. How could a murderer of apostles become apostle an apostle? Because some of the last will be first. This is how it is in the kingdom of grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. So what do we do with this? Well, I want to ask you this question. Even if you have been in a church community for a long time, either ours or, or been in church, churches for all of your life, have you really understood grace? Have you really understood the immensity of the gospel and the grace toward you in Christ Jesus? Or do you still relate to God on the basis of works? Do you know what's really difficult in a church context? Is that outwardly, two lives can look very much the same and yet inwardly, can be operating on completely different uh, principles. That is, sometimes it can look very much like everyone else in a church context, and yet you are operating on the, on the reality of works rather than grace. And to give you some kind of understanding of the difference between them, let me lay out, this was in a table in a book on the gospel, of the difference between living by works and living by grace, and how grace transforms every area of the Christian life. See, in this, way, in, in this way, the gospel is completely different from every other religion. See, religion and work says, I obey, therefore I will be accepted. But the gospel is, I am accepted by God, therefore I obey. It transforms our motivation for everything. When it's, if it's works, if how we relate to God is based on our good deeds, then everything I do will be based on fear. If I do not do good, God will punish me. But if it's by grace, we're motivated by joy and the sheer joy of honoring God. When it comes to obedience, work says, if I obey God, he will have to give me good things and owes me good things. And I obey God in order to get good things. 
But if it's by grace, I obey God just to get God and to delight in Him because He's the one who saved me. When it comes to our circumstances, works says, when circumstances go wrong in my life, I get angry at God because He owes me for all the good that I've done and all the sacrifices I've made. I deserve a comfortable life. But grace says, when circumstances go wrong in my life, I struggle, but I know that my punishment has fallen on Jesus and God has been immensely gracious to me. And he is training me through this and he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. When it comes to criticism, if you live by a gospel of works, which is no gospel at all, when you are criticized, you are furious or devastated. You're either furious because you feel like I've been good and others should recognize that I'm good. Or you're devastated because you're like, well, maybe I'm not good and there's no redemption for me. But grace says when I'm criticized, I struggle. But it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. I know that all my righteousness is in Jesus and he is the one who has saved me. When it comes to prayer, work says, well, my prayer life largely consists of asking God for stuff. And it only heats up when I'm in a time of need. My main purpose in life and in prayer is to control my environment. God is kind of the one who I, who's kind of like the man upstairs and I'll get him to do some stuff for me. But grace, in grace, my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My purpose is fellowship with God. When it comes to identity, if, you're, if you believe that it's based on your works, your identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard you work, how moral you are, and so you have to look down on others that you perceive as lazy or immoral. But if it's based on grace, your identity and self-worth are centered on the person of Christ. The one who has saved me by sheer grace. And so I can't look down on others who believe or practice other things. Only by grace I am what I am. Have you understood grace? Have you really grasped grace? Or are you still operating on works that look similar to how others are living? but really haven't experienced the transforming grace of the gospel in your heart that sets you free? Do you even find it hard to believe that God would accept you for who you are? Because in every other environment and circle that you operate in, you'll be accepted or rejected based on what you can do or what you offer. Do you find it hard to believe that God would know you to the very depths and yet still love you and accept you, not because you've done anything good, but even as a sinner, he would welcome you into his family. This is what grace is. This is why Jesus says many who are last will be first. It's not based on works or merit or favor that we have earned, but the grace of God. So what do you do then if you're here today and you're a follower of Christ and you know this in your head, but it feels like the difference from this truth from making it to your head to your heart is an almost insurmountable gap. And there can be seasons where it just feels like you're like, I know this stuff. I know that the gospel is about grace. I just, it just doesn't seem to be grabbing me by the heart. Do you know what doesn't work in this situation? What doesn't make us feel more grateful or, or, or lead to deeper gratitude to God? Is comparing down. So the idea that like, I should be more thankful to God because others have it worse than me. It is logical. And it can stop us from some of the more childish kind of you know, self-pitying sort of ways that we have, but it never lasts, does it? Not for any amount of time. Unless you have a deep sense that God has personally been gracious toward you in the gospel, nothing else will lead to a really transformed life. 
And I reckon one of the things that does it is that often there is something in our life that we feel like we need that isn't sin and that other Christians actually seem to have that I don't have. And that one thing makes us feel like God just hasn't been good to me. Whether that's a, a relationship or something financial or something like that, think, something that is not necessarily sin to have. And other Christians seem to have it, but you feel like, why don't I have that? Why hasn't God been good to me? It may have been something a little bit more serious than that. A trauma or a tragedy. We feel like, why did I have to go through that when other people don't seem to have had to? And it can make us feel like God has given us a rough deal. Like he hasn't been gracious to us or good to us. Well, I want you to consider Paul's words in 2 Corinthians as he reflects on the grace of God toward him. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, he says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When you consider what God will do in the new creation, the work that he has begun in you, that he started in the gospel. The truth is on that last day, Paul says, it will feel like the things that we've been through in this life were light and even momentary. And that's hard to believe in this moment, isn't it? I mean, Paul even says here, we look to the things not that are transient or that are seen, but that are unseen. And it's hard to look around us and consider how much grace God has already poured upon us and how much he will in the new creation. But I just want to draw your mind to this. In case your circumstances at the moment are starting to make you feel like God has given you a raw deal. Could there be a new creation so good that it would even make suffering in this life as serious as it is feel light and momentary? To be in a new creation free from sin that by its length and permanence would make the suffering of this life feel short and temporary. To be in a world where your body is resurrected and renewed and where it doesn't reverberate with the trauma and brokenness of this world anymore. Where pain is a memory and no longer painful and to know that war is over and not for the time being but will never be again. To be looking down the length of history and to know that it will never again be interrupted by sin or wickedness or injustice or war or poverty or pandemics. Paul says we don't look to our circumstances but to the true story of history and the gospel. We look to Christ, the one who saves undeserving sinners, who makes many who should be last first. Will any of us be able to say on that day anything other than God has been outrageously gracious to me? Let's pray that we might know that. Father, we praise you that we are a church and we are your people because you make the last first. Because you save those who aren't deserving of grace or favor, but you save sinners like us. We just pray that as we approach Easter, as we consider the weight of the cross, what Christ suffered for us, the joy with which he went to the cross in order to save a people for you, we pray, Father, that this would just overwhelm us with a sense of your grace and goodness to us. I pray for those who are here in the room and just struggling to believe at the moment that you've been gracious.
that by your spirit, you give them a deep sense of your goodness to them, of your grace in Christ Jesus. For those who are here and struggling to believe that you would really save them by sheer grace, that there is nothing to contribute, no works, no good deed, that they would be struck anew or even for the first time by just the sheer grace of the gospel. Father, we pray that we'd be a community who love to sing of your grace because we've not earned your favor, but you have lavished it upon us in Jesus, that you love us and know us, and that this may be our joy and our abiding hope. And we pray all these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.